and welcome to the Scriptures in Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that make them become more real to us because that helps us draw more power out of them. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and this is a special edition of the podcast. Just uh, yesterday, I did uh, an in-service for seminary teachers. Uh, this was held in Provo High School, but it was broadcast to a number of other people, uh, a number of other teachers, and it was on Isaiah 50 through 57. And uh, I had so much fun doing it. It, it, I really enjoyed it. I think it went well. Anyway, I I felt uh, it was so enjoyable. I thought I, this would be great as a podcast. So I asked them. They were recording it to have their seminary teachers that weren't there in person be able to watch it. And I asked them if I could use the recording and make it a podcast. And they were so gracious and kind that they allowed me to do that. So what you'll listen to or watch now is my working with those seminary teachers talking about Isaiah 50 through 57. And I thought that we do it together kind of just something that isn't necessarily what you'd get in every other saying, right? So Isaiah 52 and 53 and, and the Song of the Suffering Sermon, we'll touch on that, but uh, you're going to hear about that like almost any place you want to go. Uh, you're probably fairly familiar with Isaiah 53 and uh, you probably feel like you can teach that. Um, so I, I didn't think we'd spend all of our time there or even very much of our time there. Uh, if you want to just kind of a good overview of, uh, oh, I'm gonna, it's fun to hear myself. That's good. Uh, if you want a good overview of just touching on major points of 50 through 57, I'll actually refer you to my podcast. Uh, the scriptures are real is my podcast. I've been trying to put out a ton of information on Isaiah to help us during Isaiah stuff. So I'm putting out videos I made for my classes and all sorts of other stuff on there. Um, and I have an interview that uh, we just have finished editing that I'll post on Sunday, where it's Sean Hopkin and I just going through and talking about the highlights of Isaiah 50 to 57. So I'd refer you to there, and I, I feel okay doing it. I don't make any money off of it. I think they, they have ads going, but I haven't figured out how you make that money for me. I think that's just money for them. I don't know. So anyway, I, I feel all right referring you there because it's not for me trying to um, make money. That's just another resource for you. Um, and another resource I'll throw out there I, that I created, it's an ugly website because I made it and I'm not good at making websites, but when I've had people make websites for me, it's hard for me to edit what's on there. So it's called outofthedust.org, which comes from Isaiah, right? The phrase out of the dust, but outofthedust.org. And there's a page on there for Isaiah resources. Uh, and you'll see, I, I post like the podcast videos on there, but articles by other people and all sorts of stuff. So hopefully I'm just trying to get lots of resources available for people. But I thought instead we'd focus on one element that I think is a really, really strong element in all of these chapters that is often overlooked. And that's the way that the Abrahamic covenant really forms a lot of what is going on in these chapters. Um, and that as we understand that covenant, that we'll understand what Isaiah is teaching better. And I think that's true for the entire book of Isaiah. I think it's especially true for these chapters. At least Nephi and Jacob tell us that it's true these chapters, and we'll look at that in just a minute. Um, and I'll also introduce you to an, another little feature that I think tells us this. So this part I am, and, and uh, I already confessed the people in the room, and maybe the people who are already on, is it Zoom? Or what are you using? Yeah, yeah, so the people, our, our Zoom-mates is what I, I always call them in class. Um, <laughs> maybe our Zoom-mates uh, heard me talking about this, but I did actually have a little PowerPoint I made just from, like an hour ago. Um, on this with that had there's only one thing i'm regretting not having i accidentally didn't bring my computer with me as i came so we're not looking at that powerpoint but um oh actually can i use my commentary okay good it's in here somewhere let me see if i can find it um 
and we'll just hold it up to the computer there. Uh, I, as I was writing this commentary, I identified a chiasmus that I don't think had been identified by anyone else. Oh, it doesn't show up because it's over two pages. So it doesn't show up that well. All right, so never, never mind. I, I guess it'll show up there, but it doesn't. I don't have a nice pretty picture there like I had on, on my computer, but I'll, I'll just draw something on the board. So you're probably familiar with the chiasmus and you start. So this chiasmus goes from chapter 40 through chapter 57. So that's perfect. We're actually hitting the end of that chiasmus right now, right? Um, but as you know, with the chiasmus, so each chapter has uh, you know a theme, and then you just kind of work your way into the center, right? And the center theme is the most important part of the chiasmus, right? It's, it's the, the focus, maybe not the that's the most important part. It's also the thing that should be the focus. And then these outside things should also the kind of frame it, right? Well, interestingly, the center chapters are chapter 48 and 49 which we're not covering today, except for we're going to have to a little bit because you can't understand chapters 50 and 51 and 52 without 48 and 49. And you'll see that at least Nephi and Jacob think that's the case, especially Jacob. Um, but interestingly, the, the theme that you get in 48 and 49 is that uh, you are those who are part of the covenant can be redeemed and that God sends a servant to help or servant or servants to help us make the covenant so that we can be redeemed, right? And then you just kind of work your way back out. And these outside ones are also about um, redemption through covenant, right? So it is really one of the central features. And I find it really interesting that 48 and 49 are the center point of this chiasmus. And what are the very first Isaiah chapters we encounter? It's Nephi quoting Isaiah 48 and 49. And let's look, in fact, let's, let's go to 1 Nephi 19, 23. Um, and I'm just going to say that I think we take this out of context a lot and that sometimes I throw my seminary teachers under the bus. Sorry about that. But anyway, um, so, but only kind of, uh, because this is the famous verse that says that Nephi likens the scriptures to ourselves. Right. And typically when I teach this in my classes or different lectures, I ask people, how many of you have heard in seminary, Sunday school, something like that, that that means whatever is going on in the scriptures, you just put yourself in there. And, and I will say. Like you can look at First Nephi 1.1 1, 1, and it says, because my seminary teacher told me to write it, I carry having been born of good to parents. Uh, it's the, you know, I crossed out Nephi and wrote carry and that that's the, the kind of lightning that Nephi is talking about. And almost everyone will raise their hands, including myself. And I always say, and I really fervently believe this, that is a very fantastic, absolutely useful, wonderful and important secondary interpretation. But it's not the primary interpretation if you read the context, but we, we kind of take it out of context. So if you look at all the stuff before this, all the verses before verse 23, you're going to see he's talking about all sorts of things, but most especially the covenant. But let's read 23 and then the next verse, 24, which introduces his quotation of Isaiah 48 and 49, right? So verse 23, I did read many things unto them which were written in the books of Moses, but that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord, their Redeemer. I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah, for I did liken all scriptures unto us, that it might be for our profit and learning. Now, let's continue on with verse 24. Wherefore, I have spoken to them, saying, Hear ye the words of the prophet, ye who are a remnant of the house of Israel, a branch who have been broken off, hear ye the words of the prophet, which were written unto all the house of Israel, and liken them unto yourselves. You see what he's saying? He's saying, Isaiah wrote to the covenant people. You are covenant people 
Therefore, Isaiah is writing specifically to and about you because you're the covenant people. Find yourself in that reference, right? That framework as a covenant holder. And that's the, the primary interpretation, I believe, of this, that he's saying, and I think President Nelson kind of has the same mindset, right? You're in the covenant. The scriptures are about the covenant, most especially Isaiah is about the covenant. Therefore, recognize how it's about you in that way. If that doesn't convince you enough, let's go to the next time we see uh, Isaiah 49 being quoted, uh, quoted, and it's in Second uh, Nephi 6. All right. And, and let's actually put some historical framework to what's going on in the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Mormon, when we, when we get Nephi in 1 Nephi 19, what's just happened in 18? They've just arrived in the promised land. All right. So we need to put ourselves in their footsteps. This part, I'm really passionate about the scriptures becoming real for people. I think we can draw a lot more power out of them when they've become real to us. And, uh, and, and we can, we know we're real people. So when we see that there are real people in real situations, we can apply it to ourselves better, right? So that's why my podcast is called The Scriptures Are Real. It's what I tell my students the first day of every, you know, every semester, the first day of class, I tell them, here's one of the, the things we're trying to do is make these scriptures become real for you. So we're going to put ourselves, this is that kind of likening, right, that I talked about, uh, that we usually talk about. We're going to put ourselves in, in their footsteps, right? They've just arrived in the promised land. Well, that's not, that's our way of going in the new promised land for them, right? But their mindset is we were part of a covenant that said we had a promised land and we just left that promised land and we've sailed and we've landed somewhere else. We're going to build a house here and it's not the promised land. How do, how do we fit into the covenant now? That's the question that they have. And so Nephi quotes chapter 48 and 49 to help them understand that they are still about, they're still part of the covenant that it's actually within teachings about the covenant that there will be scattering and that the covenant still applies to people who've been scattered and they'll be gathered and that the covenant applies to all of us in all those situations, all right? Now let's fast forward a few more years and they've, they've built up this home and they understand that it's our new promised land and they leave again. And they go to a new place and they have to be asking, okay, wait, we keep getting promised promised lands that we keep not keeping. What's, what's going on with that? How do we fit in with that? So that would be 2 Nephi 5, right, is when they leave. So what's the next chapter? It's Jacob quoting Isaiah 49 to them, again, uh, as he answers the same question in a new circumstance, right? That they, they're still part of the covenant people. This is a different promised land, but the promises are still valid and God's still working with them. And note... Um, what, uh, and I'm going to try and find, so this would just pop up on the PowerPoint if I had it, but let me see if I can find the verse that I'm thinking of. I found it just a minute ago. Um, oh, it's, it's uh, verse 5. 2 Nephi 6, verse 5. This is right before he starts. Well, we could even start with verse 4. This is right before he starts to quote Isaiah 49. All right. And he quotes and gives commentary, quotes and gives commentary. Um, but verse 4, and now behold, I would speak unto you concerning these things, or things which are, and which are to come. This is also a verse I use when I want to teach people that Isaiah's prophecies apply to more than one time period because Jacob here is saying, yeah, well, he talks about things that are and are to come. But anyway, wherefore I will read unto you the words of Isaiah. And they are the words which my brother has desired that I should speak unto you. They're probably going, yeah, okay, if your brother gave you an assignment, we should have guessed it would be Isaiah. But anyway, and I speak unto you for your sakes that ye may learn and glorify the name of your God. Now listen to verse five. 
And now the words which I shall read are they which Isaiah spake concerning all the house of Israel. Wherefore, they may be likened unto you, for ye are of the house of Israel. And there are many things which have been spoken by Isaiah, which may be likened unto you, because ye are of the house of Israel. Okay, so you're emphasizing that these people are house of Israel, not just DNA, but more importantly, because they made covenants. Yeah. Is that what I hear you emphasizing? Yeah. And for them, we understand that those are in some ways two different things. In, in some ways, I mean, the covenant really does apply in some ways to everyone who has genetic heritage descended from Jacob, meaning that God is going to keep trying to gather them to work with them, right? But we also understand that it doesn't really, you don't really get all of the blessings of the covenant if you're not making and keeping it. And that anyone who makes and keeps it is part of the house of Israel. So for them, both are important. Um, and, and it should be in, in some ways to us, but not as much as, as it was to them. It, this, this really was, culturally, this was a big thing in their mind. We are descended from Jacob, right? The problem that they had is that they, and this is Israel in general, they often assumed they would get the covenant blessings because they were descended from Jacob, not worrying about whether they're keeping the covenant. And, and Jake, uh, Laman and Lemuel, Nephi's brothers, are great examples of this because, I mean, they have in their memory, it's only a couple of generations before that when, when Hezekiah and Isaiah got the people of Jerusalem to repent, get rid of their idolatry and renew the covenant, then Jerusalem was miraculously despaired. And that's part of what's in their, their memory when Laman and Lemuel say, Jerusalem can't be destroyed. There's no way it could be destroyed. They know Babylon is big and bad, but they've seen big and bad empires come and they don't conquer Jerusalem, right? But what they've forgotten is, well, that's because they were keeping the covenant. And they forget that keeping the covenant part. Either that or they feel like they're keeping the covenant when they're not. And it's probably some of both. Um, but uh, th that's, that's an element that I think we often find Israel forgetting. The, it's necessary to keep the covenant. It's not enough to be born uh, as a descendant of Abraham. And the Savior will address that as well, right? Um, but there are, I mean, God really is serious that if you're descended from Jacob, he is going to gather you and give you another opportunity, right? Uh, but that's true if you're not descended from Jacob and you've made a covenant. He will always give you another opportunity. We'll look at some of the verses that talk about that. So, uh, so the emphasis should be on that we are making and keeping covenants, but it's not without the idea that they, the, the Nephites knew they literally were descended from Abraham. They were very aware of that. So great question. But the emphasis for me is that each time they're reading these Isaiah chapters, they're doing it saying, this applies to you because Isaiah is writing about the covenant people and you are covenant people. So he really is writing about you specifically. All right. And then he'll give them some pretty specific Nephite interpretations. And Nephi does even more than Jacob does. All right. Now, we often say, and I think it's absolutely true, the best commentary on Isaiah is in the Book of Mormon. It is very, very, very true, but in a limited way. Nephi is not telling us all the different ways that Isaiah can be interpreted. He's telling us how Isaiah can be interpreted for his people, how this works specifically for them and their scattering and their gathering. And that's his emphasis, not so much how it applies to other branches of Israel or what's going on elsewhere in the world. He gives us a very, very specific Nephite interpretation. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's powerful and it's useful. And, and that will include the restoration because the restoration is what allows the Lamanites to be gathered back into the covenant and so on and so on, right? 
But in a way, what he's also doing is giving us license because he takes what Isaiah is saying and gives it a very specific interpretation for this one small branch of the house of Israel. He's giving us license to look for the way that Isaiah can be applied to whatever branch of the house of Israel is reading it, including us in our day. Right? So this is this likening that we should be thinking of. Yes, we should liken it to the Nephites, which is what Isaiah or what Nephi and Jacob are doing. And understand that interpretation, but we should liken it to us as covenant holders in our day as well. And so I think that's that's really important. And as we understand what's going on in Isaiah's day, as we understand what's going on in Nephi and Jacob's day, it can all the better help us understand how this applies to us as covenant holding individuals in our day. Right. So, with that in mind, and knowing that that from here Jacob will go on and quote. Parts of 49 and give commentary on it. And then he quotes, getting into our stuff that we're going to read. Uh, in 2 Nephi 7, we've got Isaiah 50. In 2 Nephi 8, we've got 51 and part of 52. Uh, and then he starts to give us commentary on it in chapter 9. Uh, and, and hopefully we'll have time to come back. Oh, there's a clock there. Hopefully we'll have time to come back to it uh, and, and kind of tie that up in a minute. But I thought we should look at some of those chapters and what's going on and let's say in 50 51 a little bit in 52 i want to do a little bit of 54 um and and just look at it in context of what it means as a covenant holder and i think that that president nelson uh would really have us emphasize this i don't know how many of you have seen his article that came out in this latest uh Leahona. um it was a talk that he gave in the leadership session of general conference last april um, so he gave it to all the general authorities, and he felt so strongly that the entire membership of the church needed it that he asked them to print it, and it's printed as his article in this um, this month. It just came out like a few days ago electronically. I don't, I haven't got my physical copy yet, but you can look at it, and it's all about the Abrahamic covenant and how the Abrahamic covenant applies to us, and so on and so on. Right? This is a topic that I think it's clear is really important to President Nelson, and that he wants it to be important to us. So that's part of why I thought it would be worth exploring Isaiah and these chapters in this way, because not only do I think Nephi and, and Jacob and Isaiah think that that's important, but I think our current prophet thinks it's important. So that, that makes me think it's important. Um, so before we get into chapter 50, and we haven't even gotten there yet, and I've already used a ton of our time, but I, I feel like this background is useful. Let's look at a little bit of what Isaiah is addressing. And I'm gonna read one verse and then I'm going to ask you how the rest of chapter 49, so you didn't know you were going to end up being uh, called on in the classroom here, but I'm going to ask you how does the rest of chapter 49 address this, and then we'll explore how chapter 50 addresses it, okay? So let's go to chapter 49, and we're going to read to verse, we're going to read to verse 14, all right? Um, so verse 14, we'll read 13, just so we're not taking it completely out of context. Uh, Isaiah says, sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth. And break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath, hath comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. This is a major theme. That's, those are the first verses of chapter 40, right? Comfort ye my people. This is because chapter 36 or 39 is about how Jerusalem, but Judah was destroyed and Jerusalem was almost destroyed, but they were saved. And now God will say, now we can comfort my people instead of keep calling you repentance. You did repent. And we're going to comfort you until your warfare is over. So he's going back to that. But then we get verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. All right, so 
there are a couple of things that, that before we go further, we need to do a little bit further background. And that is how to recognize the Abrahamic covenant in Isaiah's writings, okay? Isaiah doesn't, on a rare occasion, he will talk about the covenant. But usually, he brings up elements of the covenant that he expects his audience is familiar with, and they recognize that he's talking about the covenant. Um, but if we're not familiar with it, we don't recognize he's talking about the covenant. And these are things that we should be at least fairly familiar with. They're, they're the major blessings that are promised in the Abrahamic covenant. You've got prosperity. So Isaiah will bring up imagery of prosperity, uh, and usually he, he exaggerates it. So it's what I would call superabundance imagery, where he's saying, like, wolves and uh, lambs can sit down and have a chat with each other, and they're fine. And uh, everyone's uh, field has become like a forest and how much fruit it brings and, and these kinds of things, right? But remember that in the covenant, there's a, it's a, uh, it's almost funny to use this phrase. This is a phrase I've been using for like 25 years, but now it's in President Melton's talk that I was just telling you about. But, uh, but once you make a covenant, you leave neutral ground forever. Um, you no longer can just be okay. If you keep the covenant, you get super abundance blessings. If you break the covenant, you don't just go back to the absence of those blessings, you get the opposite of them. So that's where you're going to get imagery where you planted like a whole bunch of grain and you get a bushel back, right? That's uh, what we did in, in Isaiah 5, for example. Um, so you get images of destitution and desolation, right? So same thing, you get images of having numerous posterity. So many children, you don't have, you have to build houses close one to another to have a place for them to live. But then you break the covenant, so now all of those houses are empty and desolate because there are no children left. There are no people left, right? So uh, having the land and freedom in that land and your own righteous rulers, or you're taken out of the land and you're oppressed by wicked rulers, right? Those are images of the covenant that Isaiah uses again and again, uh, being protected or having. So God protects you when you're keeping the covenant. He brings armies against you when you're not keeping the covenant, right? So. That, those are the kind of images that Isaiah uses to let you know he's talking about the covenant by talking about the blessings. The presence of the blessings are the complete reversal of the blessings. One of the other elements of the covenant that, that we often miss um, is that uh, the crux of the covenant, what the covenant is really about, is a close relationship with God. That's the, the first and foremost element of the covenant, and everything else flows from there. That's why the, the first obligation under the covenant is to love God. Um, it's about relationships. So first relationship with God, second relationship with other covenant holders. Right? So when you see Isaiah talking about having a close relationship with God, he's talking about keeping the covenant. When you see him talking about losing that relationship, then he's talking about breaking the covenant. The scriptures in general... They'll talk about the relationship in all sorts of ways, but there are a couple of phrases that they use more often than any other to denote that close relationship with God. It is being called his people. So he'll say my people or a prophet will say his people or him being our God. Right? My God, our God, that kind of thing. Those are phrases that denote the close relationship that come as a result of the covenant. And so you'll get like Hosea who will say, at, at then at this point, he's talking about them breaking the covenant. God says, now you're not my people and I'm not your God. And then when they repent, he says, now you are my people and I am your God. Those are phrases to say you were breaking the covenant or you're keeping the covenant. We're back in that covenant keeping business, right? So no, verse 14 that we just read, the Lord hath forsaken me and my Lord hath forgotten me. This is an accusation of the covenant not being kept. 
This is Israel complaining that God's not keeping the covenant. You're not with us. Thought we had a special relationship going on here, but you're not with us. All right. So my question for you is to take a second and skim through the rest of 49, because we don't want to spend a lot of time in 49. But tell me, how does God answer that charge? This is a charge. Is most of the time we get God making a charge against Israel. That happens all the time in Isaiah. He's accusing them of all sorts of things, and he, and he states it almost like it's a court case, right? He's making a charge against them. This is Israel making a charge against God, and God answers the charges. So what are some of the ways he answers those charges in chapter 49? What are some of the things you're seeing? You see the atonement. <clears throat> Good where? Uh, 15, 16. Good. Good. And those are some of the most powerful verses to answer this, right? Is it possible for a woman to forget that the child she's nursing, basically, right? Which is not easy to do. Right? You get reminded that you're nursing a child, uh, and so that, that may be difficult, but he says it may, it's more likely that they'll forget than that I will forget. And then, we, as you said, we have that imagery of them being graven upon the palms of his hands, right? So, yes? What's the second part of that verse? I always, like, thy walls are continually before me. The word walls there. So walls, and, and it fits into this covenant thing perfectly, walls are the primary means of protection. Right? And being protected is part of the covenant. God will protect you. So walls are your primary means of being protected. So this is an image of saying, I'm, I will protect you, basically. Your walls are always going to be there. I'm going to keep them there so that you'll be protected. Right? Uh, what other things do you see in here? We get the, the famous verses that, that Jacob uses and that Nephi had already used, that the Gentiles, they'll send the Gentiles to take care of them. Historically, is that referring to Cyrus and the Persians? Ah, I think that is absolutely, that's probably the first fulfillment of it. The Cyrus and the Persians literally take the house of Judah and, and enable them to come back to the promised land and start to build up the promised land. So that's, this is part of this idea. Look at the original, um, fulfill, or original context, and it helps you understand other contexts. It has lots of other fulfillments, including going on today, right? Where Gentile nations... Often it's Israelite individuals in those Gentile nations, but Gentile nations are, are fostering the gathering of Israel in one way or another. Um, just do you, oh yeah. Do you mind? I've been confused with this. Um, so there in verse 22, and I'll set up my standard uh, to the people. Uh, that's a standard to the, at least from a historical lens, mm -hmm. the Persians, mm -hmm. right, or these Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And they, the Persians, mm -hmm. shall bring covenant sons mm -hmm. in the Persians' arms, mm -hmm. and yeah, you stop me if I'm not... No, that's me. right. Okay, and then Israel's the covenant sons and daughters. Okay, and then Israel's daughter shall be carried on the Persian sh shoulders. They're mm -hmm. allowed to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, right? Right, and they're given uh, funds, they're given uh, authority and all sorts of things to foster that, to make that possible. Give back the furnishings that were in Solomon's temple, right? Yeah, at least some of them, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, then when it says in 23, and kings, is that referring to like the Persian government? Shall be Israel's nursing fathers? Yes, in some ways, right? So the wonderful thing about Isaiah is that he prophesies in a way that can be fulfilled at more than one time period. The difficult thing about that means he has to be somewhat vague, right? So we don't want to get too incredibly literal with any specific time period. But I do think that that's its original, one of its original contexts is that you will have literally the king and queen of Persia who rule over other kings and queens and governors and things like this that will help 
provide the means that Israel needs to start to rebuild um, the, the country, right? And that happens in waves historically. You get Zerubbabel uh, coming, and then Ezra and then Nehemiah, who's the king's cupbearer, and is given wealth and authority to come back and do it, right? So there are a number of times that you have different kings and queens who are literally sending goods for them to rebuild Jerusalem and gather there again. But that's just a shadow or a type of many other gatherings. Most importantly, I believe, the current gathering, right, which has been made possible because of all sorts of Gentile nations. And you could probably change kings and queens to sometimes presidents and whatever else, right? There's uh, all sorts of ways this will be fulfilled, but that Gentile nations create the circumstances in which the gathering of Israel can happen. Good. So all of that brings us to chapter 50, all right? And we want to look at the very end of 49, where God is promising that one of the ways he will help gather Israel or, or show that he has not forgotten them is that he will relieve them of their oppressors. Everyone who is oppressing them, at some point, God will relieve them from oppression. And again, liberally, this is going to happen with relief from the Assyrians, as God destroys the Assyrian army miraculously, as the Persians destroy the Babylonians. Uh, it's going to happen in all sorts of ways. The most important way is relieving oppression from death and hell. But I believe it means oppression from uh, mental health issues, from physical health issues. And that doesn't mean everyone's uh, relieved from their oppression immediately all the time. There's often a period of suffering before the period of relief, right? Um, and the question is, can we keep waiting on God, or that's one of Isaiah's phrases, or trusting in God during the oppression so that we get to the part where he relieves the oppression? Uh, but that's what he's talking about at the very end of, of chapter 49. So relieve the oppression. Then we get to chapter 50, verse 1. And I find this to be some of the more, when I do this with my students, either in the Book of Mormon or in the Old, when I do Old Testament or Isaiah, these are some of the verses that can have, we can have some more, more meaningful experiences with. Where it says, thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? Whom have I put thee away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? So this is God very specifically answering that charge where they said, you've forsaken us. And he says, you show me the evidence that I've forsaken you. I haven't forsaken you. And then he makes it very clear why they think he has forsaken them. So the mother is Jerusalem? Or yeah, it, or, or Israel in general. Oh, okay. Um, and the question is, or when, what he tells them, it's you sold yourselves for your iniquities. And for your transgressions is your mother put away. All right, so I think this, this can end up being pretty powerful because really we sell ourselves into bondage. And, and what is it we get out of it? Well, we got the chance to do that sin we wanted to sin which in the end isn't a very good payment and we're in bondage because of it, right? Uh, and, and when you paint it that way, it can help you realize how stupid it is when you sin, uh, but also how much when we feel God's distance, it's not God's fault. And we should look inside when we feel that distance, right? That God does not abandon covenant holders when the, they, they abandon him. Right. And then we keep going in verse two. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, there was none to answer. And you can take that in a couple of ways. He often uses that phrase to mean, I was looking for someone who would help relieve the oppression, but no one was doing it. 
You're supposed to do it. You're supposed to help the poor and those who are oppressed, but you're not doing it. So I'll do it myself. He says that frequently. You'll get it in chapter 63 and other places. Um, but you could also, in this verse, you could take it in the context being, I, I called for my covenant people and no one showed up. And that's that's pretty damning accusation, right? But then look what he says. Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. That, that should strike a chord with them, right? When God dries up the sea, or uh, I make the rivers a wilderness, their fish stinketh because there's no water and dieth that for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering and so on. He is making it very clear. I am still here and I still have the ability to save you. You just need to be part of this relationship. I'm always ready in this relationship. You need to be part of this relationship. And how are we part of the relationship? We keep the covenant, which starts by loving God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength, or we could put it this way, by letting God prevail in our lives more than anything else. Or we could put it this way, by giving Christ his fair share of time, right? You can go back and look at almost all of President Nelson's recent conference addresses over the last several years, and you will find him saying this one way or another, the same thing in different ways. We need to let God prevail in our lives more than anything else. Right? We need to make more time for Christ. All sorts of ways he says this. And that's what God is asking for here. Then we get into this, this imagery of the servant. That's a really common theme here. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. But, but I think it's worth thinking of it in this way. We usually think of, for good reason, we, we, we think of Christ first. And that's, for good reason, he is the most important fulfillment of the servant imagery, right? Um, but there are other possible ones. Like, in some ways, I think Isaiah is describing himself here as the person who has the tongue of the learned and he knows how to speak a word in season and so on. But Isaiah only a couple of times identifies who the servant is. And each time he does, it's Israel. Now that doesn't mean it's not Christ or it's not Isaiah or it's not Joseph Smith. I think sometimes Joseph Smith is a very real fulfillment of, of the servant. Um, but Israel is the one that is specifically identified. And I think Israel is supposed to be a, a shadow or a type of Christ. Right? Israel's job is to bring people to Christ so that Christ can bring them to the Father. And in that way, they are a shadow of Christ. And Israel will suffer in doing that job as Christ suffers and so on, right? So that's worth keeping in mind. But we're, we're going to keep moving on. So you're saying, like, when we get Isaiah 3, surely he carried our that's what that's what we've been called born with those with born is that what i hear you saying yeah in some ways it is describing what happens to israel now there are some elements of those prophecies that can only be fulfilled by christ and it's part of why he's the most important fulfillment but most of the elements of these prophecies about the servant uh including the suffering servant songs we call them uh find fantastic fulfillments in israel and isaiah specific that he's talking about israel I don't think that means he wasn't also talking about Christ. And I think in Isaiah's mind, they're not so separable. Did I see another hand back here? You know, my question is going back to Israel um, and there's their thinking process behind how, why they feel God had forsaken them. They probably were doing all of their ordinances and ceremonies and attending church and so forth, mm -hmm. right? 
very much the same with what we're witnessing today. And the ones that leave the kingdom today um, uh, have their various reasons of why they leave. Do you see any similarities between the two as far as forgetting the covenant relationship with Christ today and why they leave his kingdom and, and then? Yeah, yeah. Although I think they they forget that they're more likely to forget the true covenant relationship and focus on the wrong elements of the covenant relationship, the outward elements, whereas we're likely to forget it in general. Um, uh, and that's Isaiah's. Well, let's let's say that's the kingdom of Judah. I actually think the kingdom of Israel it, it demonstrates a, a certain proclivity to just forgetting about the covenant in general. In fact, I would say it this way: this is another whole discussion. But when we talk about the lost tribes of Israel, we can trace where they went for a couple of generations. By the time that Assyria was destroyed, they're not that far away. They could have come back. It's not that geographically they're lost. They're lost in that they lost their covenant consciousness. They lost their covenant identity. Their problem was always, and when I say they, these are our ancestors, right? Uh, this is family history. We probably have the same proclivity. And as I look around at what's going on, I'm, I'm sure we do. They were so easily taken in by the things that seemed sophisticated and impressive in the cultures around them. They were always so easily taken in by that that they were quick to abandon many elements of the covenant and of worshiping Jehovah to adopt those things. But they felt fine about it because they still had some Jehovah worship. And until they were scattered and among other people, and then as they adopted the things of the people around them, there was nothing to keep them rooted in Jehovah as well. And they just lost their covenant consciousness and the idea of being uh, having a relationship with Jehovah and just assimilated. They were too taken in by the world around them and they assimilated. And if that's not a threat to the youth of today, I don't know what is. They are so taken in by the sophistries of the world around them that they are being assimilated. And they start out, the first step is usually to believe both the world and Jehovah. And then slowly as those, they find conflict between those two things, slowly they side more and more and more with the world until they just assimilate. It happened to our Israelite ancestors and it happens to our, our youth and young adults today. I think it's actually the greatest challenge that they have. But to go back to what you're saying, let's just keep our fingers here in 51. Let's just go to Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1, uh, verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or lambs or fee goats. When you appear before me, who hath required you this at your hand to tread my courts? That's like about coming to the temple. Bring no more vain oblations, incense is an abomination unto me. All of those are things they're supposed to do. New moons and Sabbaths, those are festivals they're supposed to have, rituals that they're supposed to go through at those, those, those times of the month. Um, the calling of assemblies, that's what they're supposed to do. I cannot away with it. It is iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, so like Passover and Feast of Booths and so on. Um, my soul hateth. They are trouble unto me. Why would he hate them doing the things that he asked them to do? And the answer is it's because that's what they're focusing on. They're trusting in that rather than actually keeping the covenant, as is evidenced by the next verse. When you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear your hands are full of blood. But then look at the next verses, and this is how Isaiah goes. Wash you, made you clean. Put away the evil of your doings before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. 
Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead with the widow. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. It is always, here's what you're doing wrong. I'm always willing to give you another chance. Now look at the next verse. If you be willing and obedient, obligations under the covenant, you shall eat the good of the land. That means prosperity in the promised land. Blessings of the covenant. He, he ties it into the covenant immediately. Isaiah does this again and again. Right? He does it at the beginning of 51. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord, look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and the hole of the pit whence ye are digged, look unto Abraham your father and Sarah that bear you. That's a clear reference to remember that they are the covenant people. The descendants of Abraham and Sarah covenant people um and then we get some great imagery for the lord shall comfort zion he will comfort all her waste places so we're going back to that same thing that i said kind of starts in chapter 40 look at the superabundance imagery he will make her wilderness like eden and her desert like the garden of the lord joy and gladness shall be found therein thanksgiving and the voice of melody right if we will come back to him and keep the covenant is what he's saying in verses one through three if you keep the covenant, you get the blessings of the covenant. Right. Let's go to chapter 52 to kind of keep tracing this. Actually, before we go to chapter 52, let's go to chapter 47, which I know is in last week's reading, but still, you may not have caught chapter 47 yet. Maybe you're going to teach it tomorrow, so you can highlight this for them. Um, this is God speaking to Babylon, right? So remember that Babylon are the people who are going to oppress Judah. And they do so feeling that they are great kings and queens and princes and princesses, right? But as he promises that they will be destroyed, right, that he will relieve Judah of her oppressors, this is what he says. Come and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Uncover the logs, make bare the leg, uncover the thigh, pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not meet thee as man. So he is describing them becoming slaves or servants. You don't get a throne anymore like a slave. You're going to sit on the ground. You're not going to be covered in beautiful robes anymore and have your hair covered in all this adornment. Slaves are either sometimes when they're sold, they're sold naked so people can see what they're getting. Uh, but they, at the very most, they get rags to, to dress in, right? Not, not nice things and so on. So he is describing the process of Babylon going from being the oppressor to the oppressed because they were oppressing Judah. Now go to chapter 52. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, right? They are getting the reversal of the covenant cursive. So Babylon is being made as this. So Judah was the slave to Babylon. Now Babylon's being made the slave, and Judah's being made the king and the queen. I put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come to thee uncircumcised and the unclean. That's a really clear covenant reference because circumcision is a, a symbol of the covenant, right? Shake thyself from the dust, arise. And sit down. So what we have to fill in in our minds and fill in the blank from chapter 47 is arise from the dust, from the ground, get it off you, sit down on the throne. Right? The throne that 
Judah used, the people in Judah used to have, but they don't have anymore. Um, shake thy, or uh, loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. That's the, that's the slave imagery, right? That they had the bands around their neck. They are not going to be slaves anymore. Now, of course, we want to look not just at that this is happening, they're being released from Babylon. Symbolically, they're being released from bondage to all sorts of stuff. Most importantly, sin, death, and hell, right? But now let's look for, thus saith the Lord, you have sold yourselves for naught. Remember when he talked about that just a little while ago? You sold yourselves for iniquity, for your sins. You've sold yourself for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. How are they redeemed? By Christ paying the price for their sins. For thus saith the Lord God, my people went aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, have my people, uh, sorry, now, therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people has taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak, for behold, it is I. And we get this beautiful imagery of, of him. I mean, again, this is as, as he talks about relieving them from oppression and naming them its covenant imagery. And so on. And then we get the verses that, you know, Abinadi and the priests of Noah have all sorts of discussions about um, and, and beautiful stuff. Um, but I'm going to just jump. Then we get all this suffering servant imagery. On, What's that? Any thoughts on there in verse six? No, not just know me, but you're going to know my name. I know that yep. Yada, the Hebrew word for no often is expresses covenant. Yes. Is that and, correct? Yeah, it is. And, and when you administer covenants, an, an important element of it is always establishing who are the different uh, partners in the covenant. And so you establish the names, right? And so you'll often see that Jehovah saying, and my name is Jehovah, or this is Jehovah, and you, this is your name, right? And sometimes it's a new name, like Abraham going to Abram or Jacob going to Israel. You see it, for example, even with um, uh, when uh, Nephi in, in uh, Helaman chapter 10, uh, and 11 uh, has this experience with God. God, make sure they, as he's giving him this promise that, I mean, I, I personally think that probably he's having a scholarly election, make sure there, I don't know, but he's having some kind of solemn uh, blessings promised upon him by God, and God makes sure that both of their names are included in that. So if you, you look and you'll see that when God is making sure both parties are named, that it's usually some kind of covenant imagery. Ask just because we're teaching this right before general conference, verse eight, yeah. to make sure. Maybe sometimes we see watchmen, and we is that referring to the prophets of Israel, or what would you say yeah, about in, verse in some ways? So the literal thing is that there are going to be watchmen who are seeing that uh, that Babylon is destroyed and Jerusalem is is going to be made free. And they can bear the good news of that. All right. So that's the original context and symbolism. But then we always want to go, once we've got that layer down, then we can go to the next layer, which is the symbolism of it. And I think absolutely it's when the watchman can tell us that good things are happening as opposed to bad things are happening. Can you elaborate on for they shall see eye to eye? Yeah. What is that? I, I think that means that the, the watchman are all seeing the same thing and agree on the same thing. And they can also see you and report to you and you're all understanding and seeing the same thing. That's just my take on it. Okay. 
but I don't know. I, it probably has a lot of different meanings. And maybe that wasn't my take. You should look and see in my commentary. Did I say something better than that? <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. The job of watchmen was usually to warn others of coming danger. In this case, they can rejoice together because when God acts to save his people, they will see salvation coming from every side. So seeing the same thing. Yeah. Um, references DNC 8498 through 102. Uh, that references this verse that provides a new song of salvation. It is exquisite and should be read to better understand the latter day fulfillment of this prophecy. That's a good commentary. That's good. All right. <laughs> uh, I want to jump in. I just have five minutes left and then I'm going to have to go because I have a, a meeting for my department that I have to get to. Uh, let's look at a couple of elements in chapter 54 that I think do the same thing. Uh, addressing this same question um, How did uh, how, you forsook us? Why did you forsake us? And he's going to say, I didn't. And, and this covenant imagery, all right? So we get in verse 54, chapter 54, the first couple of verses, single barren that it's not bare, right? So that's the absence of posterity. But now you're going to break into forth, uh, singing and cry aloud that it does not prevail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord, and large the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. That's all imagery about covenant fulfillment, right? You will now have such a huge posterity, and we could have discussions about what the forms of that posterity. We, I mean, if we we're back in 52 on the uh, Abinadi's interpretation of that, his primary interpretation is that when you help someone become part of the covenant and they are become a new creature because of that covenant, that they become your seed. They're Christ's seed, but they also become your seed when you help them with that, right? And that seems to be the most important fulfillment of this. Certainly your own children are, but hopefully that's because you also help your own children go through that process and so on. But that's at least been a nice interpretation is that they become your seed when you help them come to Christ and, and make this covenant. Um, so there are all sorts of ways that, that you have lots of children, but that's the imagery of the beginning of chapter 54. You have so many children, you're going to have to make your tent bigger to have room for them. And when you make your tent bigger, then you're going to have to lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes and break forth on the right hand and the left hand and so on. Um, but let's go to verse eight. So last right. week, that's going to be the gathering of Israel. How was that fulfilled in a, historically, anciently? That is, they, they come back to Israel and they do start to prosper again and they start to become a pretty populous nation. But Cyrus allows them to go back. Yeah, yeah. And it takes a while for them to, most Jews don't come back. But even so, those who come back to the promised land after a few generations really do start to become populous. Right, so you have this huge population you're dealing with in the time of Christ a few hundred years later. Okay. Look at verse 7. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. That everlasting kindness is a word, it's, it's chesed. We don't have a lot of time to talk about that, but chesed is a word that means it's a special kind of covenantal love. In fact, if you read this article by President Nelson, he talks about it a little bit. Um, uh, and it's a special kind of love that is available to people and mercy that's available in a covenant relationship. Once you've made a covenant, you have a different kind of relationship. There's automatically a different kind of understanding, love, mercy. That's what happens in covenant relationships, right? So he's, it's, this is covenant imagery, but he says, yes, I hid from you, but now I am going to bring you back. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. That's covenant with Noah, designed to help us think covenant. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness, um, 
And that's again, this chesed word, my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. This is his answer. Because we're in a covenant relationship, I don't care how many times you break that covenant. And when you do break the covenant, it will feel like the relationship is over because you have strayed. But I am always, always, always willing to accept you back and start the relationship over again because we have made a covenant relationship. So I never, it's more likely that all the mountains around us get up and go than it is that God stops giving us another chance to restart the covenant relationship and rekindle the covenant relationship. And that's really the major message of this big chiasmus that I was talking about and of this section, Isaiah 50 through 57. That's the message you're going to see in there again and again and again. Yes, you keep forsaking me, but I'm in the covenant business forever. So I'm going to keep working with you and keep humbling you. And as soon as you'll come back to me, I accept you back. And that's a message of tremendous hope for us and our students. And we don't want to put it in a way that it makes them feel like they can just go sin all they want. Um, because the, the pain that Judah went through while in under oppression, that's pretty real. And I don't think any of us want to be in that pain. But when we do put ourselves in that pain, the chance to shake ourselves from the dust and put on our beautiful garments and be part of a covenant relationship with God is always, always, always present. And of that I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.